0: Hello and welcome to Mastering Dungeons. I am Sean Merwin here with the master of all things good, Teos Abadia. Hey, Teos, what's going on?
1: Hey, Sean. I uh, once again love basketball. It has stopped being a treacherous, terrible uh, person and granted me victories aplenty. And it was wonderful. And and, uh, I dedicate this part of our segment to Mike Shea, who thanked us for covering basketball. Thank might be the incorrect word, though.
0: Right. I think thank is raged at us. For wasting yeah. precious, you know, minutes of his life by discussing a few minutes of basketball, so yeah, thank you, Mike. Uh,
1: we dedicate
0: this basketball minute to you. <laughs> yeah.
1: But there's a lot of non-basketball news, which I suppose sure. It's okay with Mike, we should cover. since
0: this is mastering dungeons and not mastering the half-court press. Uh, yeah. We will uh, get into the news. Uh, in the D&D and role-playing game world. And we're starting with what we started with last week, which was the first half of the Unearthed Arcana Heroes of Kryn offering that Wizards of the Coast put out. Uh, Last week, we discussed the Kender, the Sorcerer subclass of Lunar Magic. And now we're going to get into the backgrounds and the feats. And I'm going to start off by saying that uh, when I develop backgrounds or edit backgrounds that are sent in to me for publication, the first thing that I do is check it over to make sure it doesn't do more than it's supposed to do. Right? <laughs> backgrounds Where are what you going you,
1: with this, Sean? Backgrounds Where are, what are you Your character
0: was before they became an adventurer. And mm-hmm. I, did, I don't make the rules. That's what they were. That's what they always have been. Uh, so if it goes beyond that, I then say these are no longer backgrounds these are maybe right. subclasses these are these are other things so my uh, the alarm bells go off when i see backgrounds that are actually not backgrounds but something else uh, the backgrounds if we're going to stick with what backgrounds have been they shouldn't give you powers uh, they shouldn't give you things feats. like feats right uh, you know they should they should be what backgrounds are now all that said if you want to change the, what backgrounds do, great. Do that. Create a different kind of background. Create a new way that backgrounds are going to work. But just let us know that's the intent. All right, yeah, and, and you,
1: Sean, like, what is the reason we don't just suddenly change something midstream? Like, what, what is it that that effect has? Well, the on the, the, game?
0: the right the effect is on game balance uh, m- mostly. Because then you get people coming to your table with, you know, the the criminal background or the artisan background. And then you also get people coming with backgrounds that give them many more powers. And Mm -hmm. that's not a problem, again, if everybody at the table is cool with that. But when things start to get out of balance, that's when you run into issues. For With Ghostfire Gaming, before I got there, they put out a book, uh, the campaign guide, Grim Hollow campaign guide, that created advanced backgrounds. And so so I read that. And I'm like, okay, I, I understand what this is doing. This is trying to create a, a background that sort of uh, you level up in as a background. So it, you could be like a pit fighter and you start out, this is what you were. As you advance in your class, you can also advance in your background and become a more prestigious pit fighter and then the the champion pit fighter. And, you know, so it's something if you choose to do that, great. Uh, That is its own thing, though. It's not the same as the other backgrounds. So what I see going on in this article is the advancement of backgrounds into something that they're not. And again, yeah. if, if that's the direction they're going to go in the future, I'm cool with that. I think it could actually be pretty fun. But it right. needs to then be updated for the other backgrounds to be able to do more than they do.
1: Yeah, you know, Star Wars is a, a, an RPG that has had this problem in the past in that many, many editions of Star Wars have had the Jedi and then everybody else. Mm-hmm. And it somewhat reflects the reality of the world where you're supposed to be amazing when you're a Jedi. So if you're a Jedi, you can do all these amazing things with force powers and lightsaber tricks and all kinds of stuff, but then you're the best at the table Mm -hmm. and various editions of Star Wars suffered from this. And that's what happens if you run, say, a Dragonlance campaign and some people get backgrounds with feats and other people don't. Mm -hmm. The other people will notice that differential and it'll lessen the enjoyment of the whole group. And so I, I, like you, I like this, what we're going to talk about, but something must be done to equate it. Either everybody needs to take Dragonlance backgrounds. So everybody's on the same level or something, right? So like a, an examples, fourth edition, when they introduced Dark Sun, they had those sort of, um, oh God, what were they? Themes? No. what are they? Right. Yeah, I know what you, you know? mean. Yeah, yeah. And they had a thing that was like basically your backstory. And it was a way to capture how in Dark Sun you would be a thing like a pit fighter, you know, a gladiator. And so a way to capture that without creating entirely new classes, you could be a defiler as your background or a noble or whatever. And then what they did was – and that that came with power, with mm-hmm. a power uh, initially. And so what they did was give everybody those as a mm-hmm. new thing that all characters now could have. Right. Therefore, everybody had balance, right? And yeah. you could choose whether you wanted characters to have this or not. But if they did, then all of these existed and
0: yeah. Yeah, and it's – I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to uh... – I don't know if this is gonna come out right as I try to explain what I'm thinking, but backgrounds are sort of things that tie your character to the reality of the fantasy world. Hmm. Whereas the classes are abstract things. You know, you, you aren't a fighter. There's no title of fighter. The fighter is just the the class that you are, sort of the skill set that you are. Uh you know, rogue is a very general term that could mean anything. So the background for me has to work in connecting you to the fantasy world, whereas the class is is, is a more abstract thing. So when you try to make yeah you know, it, it just the, the background needs to be that thing. And if you want it to progress in the world, that's fine. Um, like these backgrounds do, right? You're a knight. You don't stop being a knight uh, because it's a background as you might stop being a artisan because you have that background and then become a wizard, right? Um, right? So there's that sort of disconnect also that you want everything to sort of equate. You want things to to be parallel, to be even uh, throughout,
1: yeah it, it's it's really interesting. I mean, let, let's look at what these do to mm-hmm. um, so the folks that have listened but don't haven't either either just glanced at it or whatever, so they know kind of what's there. but I agree with you. It's this idea of what is this trying to do, and is it doing a background thing, or should this be something else? I think is a good question. yeah yeah so
0: so the first one we're going to talk about is the background night of Salamnia. Uh, so these are, you know, knights. They're valorous warriors with strict rules guiding their actions. And so they they uphold them. And, you know, that's cool. Background, it tells you who you are, uh, what you do. Skill proficiency is athletics and survival. Tool proficiency is a musical instrument. You get an additional language. Your equipment is in the insignia rank, a deck of cards, common clothes. But then the feature, which, you know, normally is, if you're in an area where you're recognized as a knight, you get free room and board, free modest right. lodging, whatever. This is you gain the Squire of Salamnia feat, <laughs> and you know even that, that even without knowing what that feat is, you know the alarm bells are going off uh, in my head at this point.
1: And it's a good feat, so
0: yeah and then you know you also we also get information on building it with characteristics suggested you know you can roll on the table to to figure out all those other things uh and then you can take a different trinket from a, a trinket option table okay cool uh yeah. so right along those lines are is also the mage of high sorcery so again this is like a uh, an order that you have joined Instead of being for knights, though, this is for mages. Uh, so it used to be called the Wizard of High Sorcery in Dragonlance, but since they don't want it to be for wizards only, they they're calling it Mage of High Sorcery. You know, organization of spellcasters that study magic, preventing its misuse. Uh, you have not faced the dangerous tests that required to be a full member yet. Mm-hmm. This is just sort of you're an initiate. And uh, you get skill proficiency in arcana in history, two languages, you know, normal equipment, ink, pen, pouch with ten gold pieces. But your feature is you gain the feat, <laughs> uh, initiate of high sorcery.
1: <laughs>
0: uh, then we get information on building the character. You can be any type of spellcaster, uh, you, you know, even a bard. Uh, or... Even uh, one from, if you take a feat that gives you a class feature, you know, in innate spellcasting, you could do it. Uh, And then the the personality traits and so on. Uh, So let's now dig down into those feats. I will let you take over while I take a sip here.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So there are four feats, and uh, they they appear in a particular order that's, I guess, alphabetical, but, but we've sort of resorted them by... By the, the kind of membership, and this is another thing that's different, which is that the game has avoided having feet chains or feet trees.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, if you think of third edition, it had things like you know power attack, which required something else, yeah. and you know you had to take dodge and mobility, and, and then you could uh, after taking three feats, you could take the ungodly feat that all players wanted to have. Yeah. Um, and this is the same kind of concept, not as broken. It's not. I don't mean to say that, but it, but it, it is a, a feet chain system. Uh, where you have a prerequisite for one you must take before you can do the other. And that is uh, interesting because it does create these sort of limits and dependencies that 5th edition has largely avoided. Mm-hmm. So um, four feats are based on High Sorcery. Four mm-hmm. feats are based on the Knights of Salamia. And two are based on a Divine Spark, which did not have a background. So already strange. Yeah. Um, initiative High Sorcery. You must have the background to take this. Uh, or well, background gives you this mm-hmm. um so this is this is the one you would get for free if you took that background uh this is choose one of the three moons of crin, learn a cantrip and at one first level spell from the moon list so there are three moons as we talked about last episode and different spells associated with that you can chose cast the chosen first level spell without a spell slot once before you take a long rest and you can also cast it normally with spell slots So that's pretty good just in and of itself as a feat. It would be, it it does what a feat should, which is I think this feat is basically as strong as other feat options that are out there in the game. So that's what makes it interesting if you are getting this for free. Right. (laughs) Compared to getting a house when you go to a village that knows your name. You know, yep. for the night. <laughs> yep. Um free room and board or, you know, this spell that you can an extra spell once per day and cantrip and all that. Right. Um plus it unlocks these other feats that we're about
0: to talk yeah. about. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So depth of the black robes, you have to be fourth level and you have to have um the initiate feat. And you have to have a non-good alignment. And this is worth pausing and saying, like, huh, Dragonlance and everything we're seeing here is really digging into alignment in a way that fifth edition has not before. Mm -hmm. I personally have liked this a lot. I don't know how you feel about it, Sean, but it's, it's a, you know, this is, we we often wonder how would you make alignment matter or resonate? And this is, I I think just in this one document, you can see a path to that. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. I, I, I think it's pretty clear if you've listened to me over the years is I don't think alignment is a really great role-playing game tool. Uh, And, I would just rather see people play their character. I would rather see them say, well, I'm an adept of the black robes. I have a dark side, but my, you know, it's just my personality. I'm not going to put one of nine alignment categories to it to force me to try to role play or gain, uh, gain rules abilities based on that one of nine choice that I could pretty much play any way I wanted anyway so yeah. you know that that's where i come down on the issue yeah
1: but you know if you wanted a, a way to make alignments uh a little stronger you, you know you must have rules that that kick in and force them um that doesn't mean the end effect is, is going to be as great uh you know like you're saying sean um but but here we see this right so you must not be a good alignment to take the adept of the black robes um, You, in exchange for this feat, get ambitious magic. You learn a second level spell of your choice that has to be necromancy or evocation. You can cast it without a spell slot once. You regain that next long rest. Or you can use your spell slots normally. And then you have the ability life channel. When a creature within 60 feet of you fails a saving throw against a spell that you cast, you can expend a number of hit dice, cool, equal to the level of the spell. Roll a number of hit dice equal to half the number of hit dice hit dice you expended so if you were expended four hit dice you would roll two now mm-hmm. and that's the damage that the triggering creature would take beyond what you would normally take from that failure of the spell it's a little unclear here whether you can have them fail at a non-damaging spell sure. and still use this by the wording it does it's just that it sort of says you know the amount they take increases but I guess it can increase from zero so it's probably fine right. um, yeah what do you think uh, I don't.
0: I don't horribly dislike it. Uh, mm-hmm. I. I, <laughs> I just, you know, if if it's a spell, okay, a saving throw, so it wouldn't mean attack roll, so you can't crit on it, uh, mm-hmm. unless there's a saving throw component later. I don't know if there are any spells like that. Yeah. Anyway, I it's it's a it seems to be a very roundabout way. I like the idea of you're giving up some of your life energy to. Yeah to uh
1: to do some extra damage uh
0: yeah i i, I think it's i think it's fine um, it's
1: super interesting to see I me. Mean, just man all the things in here that are never before seen right like yeah let's mess with backgrounds let's have alignments dig in and let's expend hit dice like wow okay <laughs>
0: yeah i mean i've seen this done in third party pro- products. yes all over the place yeah so i'm not surprised it, it didn't shock me that that it was done uh, it just, it seems to be the further you get along in the, to a life cycle of a edition of D&D, the more you need to pull out these sort of corner cases, edge cases, find new ways to do things. And yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm fine with it.
1: Yep. Yep. Um, all right. So then that's what the black robes get. What do the red robes get? Well, <laughs> tell them what they win. Do, 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 do. Uh, so you again get this whole choose a second level spell. This time it's divination or transmutation, and it's called insightful magic instead of ambitious magic. So there's you know flavoring here. And we're going to see this again with the Adept of the White Robes. They'll get a second level spell. This time it's abjuration or conjuration. So all three feats, different robes, different themes, and the same mechanic of getting a second level spell, which is cool. I'm totally fine with that. Mm -hmm. um so then it's what's your special little ability thing that you get this one for the red robes the neutral mages is called magical balance when you make an attack roll an ability check or a saving throw and you roll a nine or lower you can use your reaction to treat it as a 10 you can do that a number of times equal to your proficiency bonus regain all uses with a long rest Mm
0: -hmm. yeah i mean it's not as sexy for a lot of players as doing the extra damage Mm -hmm. uh but you know, if you're making death saving throws, uh, if you're you know, if not if falling, you're, yeah, if you're making those saving throws that are save or have very bad things happen to you, this is this is great stuff.
1: Yeah, and then the white robes, their special ability, in addition to the second level spell, is when you are a creature you can see within thirty feet takes damage. Use your reaction to expend a spell slot. Roll a number of d4s equal to the spell slot level. Reduce the damage by the total plus your spellcasting ability modifier. That seems to me
0: a little weak, maybe, like d4s. Well, what I'm wondering is why do half of your hit dice above, right? Spend a number Mm -hmm. of hit dice, roll half, but then it's d4s here. Uh, Right. Yeah, I would rather just say above instead of half for every hit i spend roll roll a d6 or you know, roll a right, d4 yeah
1: uh
0: but uh i don't know it's so if you're using a reaction to cast use a fifth level spell slot 5d4 uh works out to about the 12 and a half hit points that you're saving for a fifth level slot um well. Yeah. Plus your
1: spellcasting modifier, so maybe it's oh, plus three or something. Yeah, plus but four. it's still, I, yeah. I still feel like d4s are a little too low for that.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree that.
1: I would like agree. I'm not would... spending a fourth level spell slot on this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, agree. Um,
0: I, I think it could be bumped up a hair.
1: So then we have the Divine Feats. From Wizards, we turn to Priests. And again, Dragonlance, a world where there are no gods. So this is sort of an amazing thing. Um, a god has chosen you to carry a spark of their divine power. This is divinely favored as the feat. You learn the Thaumaturgy cantrip, one first level spell from a class list based on alignment. So evil is warlock or wizard, good is cleric or wizard, and neutral is druid or wizard. Apparently wizards are not typecast. They, they run the other things. Around. right? Typecast. Yeah. Yep. I mean, I get it. Uh, you can cast that first level spell that you chose once, regain with a long rest, or use it as a spell slot normally. Typical mm-hmm. rules for it. So yeah. you get that. Um, and what's interesting is this is just like that other uh, wizard mm-hmm. high sorcery feat, but it doesn't have a background. And I wonder if they just didn't want to float it past us, but they're actually making it?
0: Yeah, it's I'm quite wondering. possible. It's quite possible. And then the the second feat that comes off of that is divine communication so you need the divinely favored feat and need to be fourth level to do divine communications Uh, first of all you gain a plus one to the ability score that you chose and used for your divinely favored feat um, because you have to choose what uh, ability score that you are going to cast with so anyone could take it you know, bards could take it and choose charisma Uh, you get celestial plus two other languages so you can talk divinely to your, your deity, and then you get mm-hmm. divine omens. So you can cast an augury or a commune spell without it using a spell slot. And then you must finish one D four long rests before you're able to cast either one of those spells again. Uh, and you could also use spell slots that you have through your class to cast those spells as normal. Uh So, yeah, my first thought was, okay, cool, you know, augury commune, can you have lots of fun, do cool things with those. Mm -hmm. The 1d4 long rest before doing so again (laughs) is the one that gets me because I hate bookkeeping. Yeah. So I understand why they're doing it uh, because they don't want you to do every long rest. They want it to be sort of random. Uh, I would rather just see something like at the end of a long rest, roll a d4, or any die whatever percentage you want to make it uh so and then if you roll a certain number you regain the ability otherwise rolled again at the end of the next rest uh sure there's a chance that you could get unlucky and not have it for a while uh but you know if i'm you playing the character and i rolled you four and it's like oh i got a three i'm gonna forget when my last long rest was and you know some if you play a type of game where you might play three or four sessions before you actually get a long rest. Then you're talking, you could be playing 13 or 14 sessions that you have to remember when that long rest ends. So doing it right in the moment is a lot easier to handle than trying to keep track of that uh, length of time, but that's, that's me. Otherwise I'm fine.
1: Yeah, I I probably would think that I I don't really care if a character casts these all the time, um, but yeah, and the one d four I just meh, yeah I don't know,
0: yeah
1: like I just they don't seem like atrocious spells and and if they are then just use only Agri or something or I I don't know you know use the weaker ones and
0: yeah yeah
1: I forget uh, I forget the difference between all of them I did not look them up before the show but you know right. some of them are stronger than others but usually. They do not super reveal everything anyway, so I don't. You know, I'm fine with somebody who's doing this all the time, or just honestly, even say that the DM. You know, if these are used all the time, the DM can decide that no information is gained. You know, like they're not meant to be abused. End of story. Right? Like, I don't
0: know. Yeah, and that's that's always a choice you can make anytime Mm -hmm. anyone casts that. (laughs) So, uh, you know, it's all good there. So the the Squire of Salamnia feat that the Knights of Solemnia background gets. You get martial training, so you're proficient with medium armor and martial weapons. Uh, Defensive rider, you gain advantage on saving throws to avoid falling off a mount. Mm. That's interesting because I'm trying to think of times when you would have to make a saving throw to avoid falling off a mount versus the note that you made, Teos, which is
1: Ability checks, you know, which is probably what would just as often come up. Right. Yeah. It's like, you know, I make, let me see if you stay on your mount. Make me a, you know, yeah. strength act, check. Athletics
0: or, check, right. Athletics yeah. Check. Hmm.
1: So, yeah, and and I just, and I'm trying to think of, uh, have I been in a fifth edition game where someone had to roll to stay on their mount?
0: Yeah. Not I know many that come, that has
1: come up in my game and I've played a lot come. of hours. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Uh, and, and the final thing you get with the feet is called encouraging rally. So uh, when another creature you can see within 30 feet makes a saving throw, you can use your reaction to inspire them. If they can hear and understand you, they gain advantage. And you can do this again after a long rest. Hmm. Yeah, it's, I I sort of just, I want feats to be the same. I don't want feats to give you things that you can do once per long rest. I want feats to be things that you can always do. I want yeah. class abilities to be things that either you can always do or they they uh, you know they are limited in terms of resources. Uh, and so this thing of it do, trying to do more than one thing, uh, I understand that there's a limited number of avenues that you can go. You can go mm-hmm. subclasses, classes, you know. Racial species abilities and feats and backgrounds. So I understand why there is a temptation to change them. Uh, I just not.
1: Yeah, I I don't know what I want from feats. I just know that feats in fifth edition are a little too all over the place and don't seem to succeed at whatever we might say the design goals for them are. You know, if we were to sit down in a room and agree on the design goals for what feats should attain... We would probably then all agree that they're not consistently doing that. Some right. do, some don't. Right. And and that's that's my issue with feats. Is just they're all over the place. And this is another one where I'm like, this is clearly not as powerful as lots of other feats. It's on par with some of the weaker ones. Does that make it okay? I don't
0: know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so. Not. So, the, so that's the one that you get for free uh, if you're a Knight of Solemnity, a background character. Then there are three different orders of knights. First is Knight of the Crown, which uh, extols virtues of cooperation, loyalty, and obedience. And they're all about group combat. If, when you take this, you get the ability score increase to either Strength or Dex. And you get tactical teamwork. So when a creature you can see within 30 feet makes an attack roll against another that is within five feet of you, you can use your reaction to grant advantage on that attack roll. You can do this a number of times equal to your proficiency bonus, and you regain all those uses with a long rest. So if some, if, yeah. if an ally attacks an enemy that's adjacent to you, you can give them advantage.
1: Yeah, and do that several times a day. That's the opposite of the previous one. This is pretty strong because you also get the plus to strength your deck. So um, yeah, pretty good.
0: Yep. Uh, Knight of the Sword, again like the Knight of the Crown, fourth level. Uh, Knight of the Sword is devoted to heroism and courage and bravery. Um, you get a proficiency uh, to your saving throw of either intelligence, wisdom, or charisma. You choose yep. one when you take the feat. And the little extra bonus is willpower. Immediately after you are a creature you can see within thirty feet of you fails a saving throw, you can expend a hit die. The saving throw result increases by that by the roll of that hit die. So roll your hit die and add it to the saving throw that was just failed. And so then you can't do it again.
1: Eaten yep. up to do that, yeah. Yeah, hmm. yeah uh, I can see that you go above and beyond and exhaust yourself, sort of thing. What's interesting about these, and we've got one more here, but um. You can take all of them. So unlike the the high sorcery ones where you must meet the alignment here, it does say that you can take all of these.
0: Okay. And for Knight of the Rose, uh, it's devoted to justice, leadership, and wisdom. You can uh, increase your con or charisma by plus one. And the extra ability is called Bolstering Rally. When you roll initiative... You can choose up to three creatures that you can see within 30 feet of you. Uh, Each can gain temporary hit points equal to a roll of your hit die plus your proficiency bonus plus the ability modifier you increased uh, using this feat. And you can do this a number of times equal to your proficiency bonus and you regain all the uses after a long rest. So here's more temporary hit points being thrown our way.
1: And this is one where it's equal to a roll of your hit die, but I don't believe that's expending it so yeah yeah um yeah more temporary points. okay
0: <laughs> yep so you know it's it's i it's cool in terms of dragon lance the flavor of dragon lance that sort of thing uh, mechanically it's pretty much what i would expect uh you i could see any of these making it through to the final uh the final product and I could see none of them making it through to the final product if something else comes up that's better. Nothing stood out to me and said, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. Uh,
1: yeah, so. what I did like was that it's clearly a bold attempt to do new things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and we saw that with Strixhaven where they had some neat alternate ideas and none of them went on to the, or the, those things that were really new and different did not make it through to the final product. So maybe that'll happen here or maybe fans will like certain ones and they'll tweak it a certain way. It'll really be really big uh, fascinating to see what ends up actually existing yeah. because that's going to if they are these types of mechanics, it'll it'll probably have a big influence, right? It'll people yep. will use these mechanics in third-party products. They'll have to change how they conceive of backgrounds perhaps, you know, and feet, so that's interesting.
0: And that is our look at that particular Unearthed Arcana, Heroes of Kryn. I assume within you know within the next week or so that they'll put up a survey that lets mm-hmm. everyone who play tested give their opinions and everyone should feel free to do so. Moving on, we have new news about hires at Wizards of the Coast. We've been going over all the openings that have been there, waiting patiently to see how they were filled and now we know two of them uh first yeah. is adrian eng uh who announced on twitter that he received the job of wizards of the coast senior developmental editor uh adrian has worked previously at the pokemon company international paizo and nintendo of america mm-hmm. you want to take the other one then that was we just oh. found this out this morning
1: yeah, it's an honor. Uh congratulations to Justice Ramin Arman who is now a new Wizards of the Coast senior game designer. Um Justice is well known uh, to folks on Twitter and as a DM skilled designer as a DM streaming and working at Beetle and Grimms. And he wrote on Twitter about how hard, how he had worked so hard to balance RPGs and what a dream this was as he Worked in the healthcare industry and trying to, you know, design at nights and weekends and something a lot of us know a lot about. Um, He also shared his perspective as an Iranian-American in tabletop RPGs, how meaningful it is for him to succeed. And he's just known as being such an excellent advocate of good play, of being a good person, treating each other well. Mm-hmm. um, having good friendships in the industry and so on that I think for a lot of us, it's a real joy to see justice get this position.
0: Oh, absolutely. Uh, I didn't realize it cause I hadn't gone on Twitter until I was reading the show notes that you had added. And when I saw that he was leaving beetle and Grimm, my first thought was, Oh no, what happened? So I like immediately <laughs> reached out and said, you know, if you need any work, let me know. Yeah, uh, thinking that, you know, that something uh-huh. went wrong it would never even, uh, thinking for a second that he may have gotten this job so you know i i have a moron and uh congratulations that's Justice, funny uh for this i life. had the
1: opposite thing which is i actually thought he'd gotten exactly this because i was like why would he live leave beetle and grimm's either like you thought something went completely wrong or he's got something really good <laughs> <laughs> and and it, it's on the really good side so looking yeah. forward
0: to both Adrian and Justice's uh, contributions to the hobby going forward.
1: Yeah,
0: uh, the Ghostfire Gaming team is also growing. Uh, Joe Rosso is going to be helping produce the Ghostfire Gaming's monthly Fables line, and uh, we are very excited. I will speak on behalf of Ghostfire uh, yeah. to have to have Joe joining the team. Uh, James Hake, who had been overseeing the Fables line, is. Going to be joining me in producing some of the other Ghostfire Gaming goodies that are coming down the line. Awesome. So, uh, well, we, we are expanding.
1: Joe is fantastic. Uh, I love the products he's done, like his Rashaman guide and, and several others. Uh, I've managed to meet Joe as you have at conventions. Just wonderful, wonderful person. Another excellent hire. Um, and I watched um, the podcast. Uh, that, that you are on with the the Ghostfire team, uh, which had a really big problem right at the beginning. I just have to say, as a listener, um, for for your data points that you guys, uh, I, I believe it was said number one podcast instead of number two, small, yeah. well, yeah, uh, mistake. Yeah. But um, but you guys <laughs> talked about producing products and and the amount of work that goes into it. It was a really neat listen. Yeah. I
0: and if you are in the need for work hey marvel's hiring a coordinator for new (laughs) initiatives to support role-playing games and more uh so this this role will support the development of various projects including but not limited to the upcoming tabletop role-playing game as well as other initiatives uh so what what did you think about that
1: i mean so first of all this listing has so many acronyms and, and that it always makes me laugh whenever a job posting is like, you must know this space so well to decode all these letters. Um, But maybe the biggest thing, I mean, obviously it could be a cool opportunity, but I I figured, okay, Marvel's doing an RPG. They will make it. They'll forget about it. And this thing indicates that I'm totally wrong about that and that Marvel is not just going to throw this away. They want to grow and sustain this and maybe make other things like it. And that's interesting because they, of course, have the enormous leverage to yeah. enter this space and be a factor in it. If they so choose, they could devote millions to that or hundreds yeah. of thousands or anything if they want to succeed. And that's really, really interesting.
0: Yeah. I mean, it, when you think of Marvel, when you think of Disney with Star Wars uh, you know, or Warner Brothers with with DC, you think, well, they they license that out to some gaming company some large or small gaming company or brand Mm -hmm. new gaming company and you just let them do their thing and they'll you know they pay whatever back and you make a little money you get a little free advertising from the role-playing game and and that's it so to see them actually going to this extent is both exciting and terrifying uh to to see that these really really big companies are paying attention to the role-playing game field now uh speaks to where role-playing games are seen in terms of both society and in terms of the power that they have all on their own
1: yeah normally you see somebody like hasbro who makes games trying to sort of create worlds out of their games right that's what they're doing with dnd in a lot of ways yeah try to create the movie and the comic books and the whatever's and try to maybe get into the marvel space if marvel goes the other direction you know watch out because they could say okay you know let's link all these things together and let's yeah, yeah. let's really have the average person know that there's a marvel rpg out there if, if they decide they want to do that that could have a really big impact sure
0: so we've heard a little bit more about the D movie thanks to actor chris pine who shared some insights about the upcoming movie he was interviewed by collider where he said the movie has a light-hearted tone uh He says, what I will say is we had a hell of a lot of fun making it. There was a lot of laughs. The way that I've been describing it, it's like Game of Thrones mixed with a little princess bride, just a smidge of holy grail. It's somewhat in that ballpark. A lot of fun. It's got a lot of thrills. It's poppy. It's 80s heartfelt. There's a bit of Goonies in there. My character, he's the ultimate party planner. I think it's going to be really good. I mean... (laughs) knows but i think we got a good shot and john and john are killer guys uh the two writer directors mm-hmm. uh, they know comedy and they know heart and we had a great cast and we had a good time making it and that's all you can ask for
1: yeah pretty good
0: yeah i mean there's we've talked so much about what should or shouldn't <laughs> be in a dnd movie that at this point i just it's it's out in a year uh hopefully so we'll all be able yeah. to watch it
1: a year oh, okay, from now yeah. Even if it's terrible, I can't wait. Honestly, either. I just want to know. I want to see it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so hopefully we'll uh, we'll see a really fun, uh, good movie. Do you want to finish us off with our news here about the Adventurers League? Yeah.
1: There's a lot on going on with the Adventures League. Uh, check the Yawning Portal blog for all of the details. But uh, it, it's a couple things, and I'll run through them quickly. New service awards for DMs. When you DM, you get awards for doing so. Perks. So that's been updated based on DM feedback. There's a new critical role campaign. At a very simple level, what this means is you can go to the various Yawning Portal events, like there was one this last weekend, mm-hmm. and you can play through the entire Call of Netherdeep adventure. There's also a competitive adventure, um, Cold Rush, that's multi-table. It's not tied to Netherdeep. It's, it's more um, uh, from the Wild Mound and and it's just sort of a fun one-shot uh, where you compete to try to win the event. Uh, and then there is a, a special introductory adventure which appears in the book, the Wildmount book, called Frozen Sick. Both of these were written by James and um, those So all those are available for play. The, the, the one shot competitive, the intro, and the entire critical role called the Nether campaign can be played through the Baldwin Games, Yawning Portal, Virtual Weekends. Um, and then uh, a whole bunch of new adventure releases. Oracle War comes to a close with the level 20 uh, old scores adventure where you return to your original home base, which I'm a very big fan of, to settle old scores and play a role in everyone's future. Congratulations to you, Will Doyle, Stacey Allen, all the writers on an amazing, amazing role-playing game uh, campaign. Uh, one of the best organized play campaigns out there, so that's just fantastic.
0: Well, thank you. Uh, it's, yeah. it's all Will. Uh,
1: thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. So yeah. folks who ever want to look at a series of adventures that take you from level 1 to 20, this is really an amazing one to look at. And if you want to look at what constitutes a good organized play experience, same thing. Um, then we have the Dreams of the Red Wizards campaign, the two latest adventures, 16th and 17th, um, the, by Jonathan Connor Self and Paul Gabat. Both adventures are for levels 11 to 16. Ravenloft Mist Hunters is coming to a close. So these are adventures for 6th to ninth level by GM Tim, Marcelo De Velasquez, two names known to folks who have been uh, on the show here, yep. Gabriela Harbowie, and Steffi Devan. Um, and then there are interviews with some of those authors that have been posted on the Yawning Portal. I'm sure others will as well. Uh, Ravenloft Mist Hunters is, is ending as a campaign as well. It's come to um, a close in terms of what's appearing on Yawning on the virtual weekends event. So uh, we'll see right now it's, you know, sort of your typical, uh, you can play through um, the uh, wild mount campaign and you can play the dreams of the Res wizards and you can play the new critical role. So we'll see whether that expands or whether it stays a little more focused.
0: Yeah. So lots of, lots of stuff going on with AL, lots of stuff in the news, so much going on. So much to look forward to. So let's continue to look back. Mm -hmm. We're going to look back again at a adventure from the first edition days. With Dragonlance being on our minds, we decided to look at DL1, Dragons of Despair. This first edition D&D module was published in 1984. Mm -hmm. It was the first in a series of 16 adventures. In what you could probably think of now as a Dragonlands adventure path, um, yeah. although some of the later adventures had smaller uh, smaller things that got more into the world rather than uh, continuing an ongoing story. Uh, the last in the series, DL16, was published in 1988. So there was like a four or five year window there where they put out all of these adventures. Uh, Dragons of Despair was a 32 page adventure still is uh if you look at it for characters of levels four to six so it did not start at uh first yeah. level Interesting. it's it's funny though because they put in the adventure all of those original characters from the Dragonlance novels and it says an adventure for characters of levels four to six and raceland's a third level wizard
1: uh, I didn't notice that. That's hilarious. Yeah,
0: I'm fairly sure, unless uh, unless my eyes tricked me.
1: So no, you're right. And so, oh, you know what it is? It's 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 because the experience point levels in AD and D. Exactly. So they must have used a certain number of XP for folks who don't know. Like right. you know, at, at thirty thousand XP, one a rogue might be fourth level and a wizard might be second. I don't know I'm mm-hmm. making up these numbers, right. but it, yeah, so that's third. what it is. Right. So the cleric is fifth. The fighter is fifth. Uh, that's so funny. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, six level, yeah, fighter. So you can start at totally different levels. That's classic. Yep. Yep.
0: So you're not going to grab this and, and use it with first level characters if you decide to update it.
1: Uh, <laughs> the humans are higher level, correct? So yeah. an,
0: another thing that, that I learned while I was researching this and would have sworn that it was just the opposite. This adventure was actually published a few months before the first novel was published. Yeah. So if you got right on the bandwagon, you could have played the adventure with your group then gone and read to see how other this other group played it as part of the the uh novel
1: yeah and i have the um a really nice read is this i'm holding it up for sean's benefit but the silver mm-hmm. anniversary uh dragon classics book mm-hmm. um is a re not just a reprint of these adventures but a remake of the entire 16 adventures and the beginning of it is a bunch of like retrospectives by various staff members at TSR mm-hmm. and they talk about how all of this came to be and, and Tracy Hickman basically was moving across the country for his new job and in his van loaded up with all of his belongings, leaving his home behind, he writes this story about armies coming and forcing people to move with all their belongings mm-hmm. and leave their home behind. Yeah. <laughs> and. And he also comes up with this concept of once he arrives in, in at TSR and he's trying to think of what, he, what to do, he thinks, what if there was an adventure or a series of adventures and every adventure you fought a dragon and at the end you fight Tiamat. So you fight through all the dragons and apparently sealed himself away for many months to write this to the point where people were thinking like, that guy's not getting any work done. And <laughs> then he emerges with this idea and people are like, oh, yeah, it's actually pretty good. Okay, let's make and, that. <laughs> yeah. Because there were a lot of dungeons
0: in, in the early days of Dungeons and Dragons. Not a lot of dragons. Um, mm. So it, it made good sense to start highlighting that part of of the hobby.
1: And boy, yeah, and,
0: boy did they.
1: <laughs> and can I say just one more fun fact of, of history that I didn't know before I looked at the Silver Anniversary version. But originally, the idea was that um, you know, Tracy Hickman and Margaret Wace, when she joined the staff, they were going to sort of outline the important things for novelists to then write the novels Mm -hmm. and they you know just for various company reasons were never getting around to it and so finally like well what if the two of us write it and so they just started writing it right just so many what ifs that took place for this to end up being a classic beloved series of novels right
0: and it is all based on a game that that Tracy hickman ran Yeah. Uh, so all of the Beloved characters, if you do, beloved them, uh, were <laughs> were you know played by the people at, at TSR. At TSR. Yeah. yeah. So, what is in this adventure? Well, if you've read the first novel, uh, Dragons of Autumn Twilight, you know what's in this adventure because it basically is the plot from the novel. Yeah. Uh, you start, and the uh, adventure is we're going to talk about linear versus railroad versus sandbox versus all of those things. Uh, but since the adventure follows the, not uh, the plots now the novels plot uh, and introduces many of the same NPCs. If you've read the novel, you pretty much can just follow the same path that the, <laughs> that the adventures in the novel did. And in fact, that's really sort of the best way to run it as a DM. Yeah. Uh, which makes it weird to read it as an adventure and see where the, the text sort of tries to make it nonlinear when it would be better if it just leaned in and said, let's just, let's just get on this path and let's take it.
1: And yeah, just just take a step back when you first as DM crack open this adventure, You will see a hex map, Mm -hmm. which usually these days you might think of, ooh, this is a sandbox. Mm -hmm. And it's got locations. It's really hard. In fact, there are two maps. There's one that must be a player's handbook in full color, or handout in full color. And that one is legible if you own the physical copy. Then there is one that's in the middle of the thing. Neither of them have a label to say DM or player. That one is black and white, really hard to read, and has has numbers on it. Uh, But the features, you can't tell them out without the color version. Between the two, you can figure out what's going on. And then it proceeds to not be a sandbox. It looks like it. It smells like it. But it is not a sandbox. Because everything in really subtle, hard-to-follow ways is actually pushing on a very specific route. But in the weirdest heavy-handed ways. Like... The army, the dragon army will descend and, and, but it doesn't say forcing you to go here. It just says here are the mechanics by which the dragon army begins to descend Mm -hmm. and take over spots. And then you can conclude, oh, and so therefore they must go east. Right. Yeah. Or south, but.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's, it, it's exactly as Teos is saying it, the adventure never comes out and says These are like the 12 steps that you should, Mm -hmm. you have to cover to get the characters from the introduction to the final scene. They need to see this, they need to know this. And if it had just come out and said that, then it would be easier for you as the DM to follow not just the path, but create your own path through. But the way it's written and the way it doesn't come out and tell you what needs to be done. It's almost like they're trying to avoid railroading you while railroading you would actually benefit you as the DM to make sure that the the game flows smoothly, that you're creating an experience that's going to be the most fun for the
1: players. And this is one where you must read this adventure to understand Mm -hmm. all of it and then go back and run it. And I am 100% sure that when I was a very young Uh, You know, when I was a teenager, I ran this while reading it, Mm -hmm. you know, like I just picked it up and I ran it. And I remember being so incredibly frustrated. And I remember the first thing I was frustrated by was it says, you know, they start at the X. I don't know where the X was. Right. So I just picked a square. Which suggests to you that you could then head in any direction, but it and it, it was so frustrating to try to follow it as I ran it. It was almost impossible. I don't yeah. think I'd, I don't know if I finished running it.
0: Yeah, and what happened with my group was this was when I was playing D anD D the most, and we had mm-hmm. three DMs that we were sort of rotating through, and two of us were running our own homebrew games, so we had we had no interest in running this other, and the the person who was running published adventures, read it and said, I've already read the novel. You've read the novel. We don't need to play this game Mm because it's just the novel again. Uh, So we ended up not, not doing it. (laughs) Uh, But it makes good sense that if you have already read the story, you don't really need to play the story again, unless that's what you get joy out of.
1: It's worth mentioning that there's some interesting twists to the world that, Mm -hmm. uh, Are surprising and these are explained up front Mm
0: -hmm. yeah so the the, this is what they say gold has no value in this world so each of the regions has their own sorts of coin but if you walk into a town with a big brick of gold they're going to say boy it's too bad that's not iron because we could really use that to make weapons with so gold uh so that throws everything that most people were interested in in D&D up to that point was killing monsters and finding gold that takes away the finding gold portion
1: of of our show and uh, then the adventure at various points teases you with yeah, things that are covered in gold that are worthless that are, that are totally <laughs> worthless exactly uh, the second twist
0: is clerical spells have not existed for nearly 300 years so cure wounds nope not gonna have it uh and that was the only way to heal in AD&D unless you had potions of healing
1: right
0: so that's that's tough right there and no dragons have existed in kryn for over a thousand years in this new world called dragonlands uh, so that was sort of a thing and the, the last bit was they introduced the kender and it comes right out and says, Kender are halflings, only they don't have, only they wear shoes. Uh, and <laughs> they have these two extra abilities called Taunt and Fearlessness. And it's pretty much what the new uh, book or the new uh, Unearthed Arcana said, right? Taunt is, they can taunt. Fearlessness is now advantage on saving throws against fear instead of full immunity. But, you know, it's been there since the beginning for Kender. Yep uh the adventure is for characters six to eight characters of levels four to six as we said earlier and they strongly suggest that you use the pre-gens because the pre-gens actually have not only equipment and stats they also have sort of the role-playing background that you need and they're exactly the characters from the the novels (laughs) uh and karamon and half helen and Sturm, right they're they're all there all all your favorites uh so if you what most groups have that i was was aware of had to do was right they started playing somewhere else they're like oh we're fourth level oh let's go play this adventure oh wait it's on a completely different world with oh i was playing a cleric well you're not anymore uh, right, So they tried to sort of shoehorn their characters into this completely different world. And it really didn't matter too much.
1: <laughs> and, and one of the things I really love is there is a pointless adventure where everybody's invited to share their backstory. And the idea is that you all went out for, I guess, your first three levels to look for clerics. Right. Because if you could find one, the world could be changed because the gods have forsaken it. And you basically have all come back to report you didn't find any. And then you read out your backstory piece. And it says if someone's not playing a pregen, they don't need to speak because their backstory doesn't matter. <laughs> right.
0: It's not like you can imagine your own. No. Uh, right. It's just like forget them. Uh, so, but that's Wonderful. sort of what D and D was back then. A bit. There wasn't a lot of backstory. Uh, that the rules certainly didn't call out any backstory, and. You know, if you wanted to create a cool cool backstory, no one was stopping you, but it really wasn't a focus for, I would guess, a majority of the players, at least the majority of players who I dealt with back in the first and second edition days, even third edition days.
1: And, Uh, you know, and we do want to speak to this conversion. And so if you are converting this adventure... You know, One is you want to get the sense of this module before you ever start so you can make the necessary changes because this is one where really you see the examples of time having changed things. And so you need to update it. Uh, in this specific example, if they're going to bring their own characters, which you likely want to do since you don't have a fifth edition pregen for Tannis and all the others... Um, you want it's a good thing to look at these backstories and think about ways to work with the players to give those to them, right? And, and because honestly, there is nothing about them. It's like, oh, I went to these forests and these places, and here's what I saw, but I didn't find any clerics. Well, you can easily put that together based on these backstories, no matter what they're playing, and and that brings the idea, which the whole point, and this is where you know I think we've gotten better as designers, is the point of this scene is supposed to be. We're all telling each other about the world we're in, which right. is really clever. Yeah. It's just ham fisted about how it goes about it. But right. the idea is really clever. And so if you can dig into the good of it and yeah. update it, modernize it, this will be a great scene where everybody brings something to the table about the world. That's cool. Yeah. And
0: this is one of the first adventures I remember seeing that separated events from encounters. Mm. And so what it does is it says, This this adventure has these events events can happen anywhere, but they happen at a specific time. Whereas encounters can happen at any time, but they happen at a specific location. I'm like, okay, cool. They're, they're trying to meld these two concepts. So it's, it's a little more, it's a little less railroady, but (laughs) it ends up still being very railroady. Uh, so I'm going to go through the events really quickly. Event one is the party meets. And that's what Teos was just talking about. They all come together to share what they found because they were friends before. They adventured together before. They went off. Now they're coming back together. Uh, their meeting is interrupted by an attack from Hobgoblins led by Fumaster Toad, uh, who gives the plot away right right, right from the event one. Hey, Get the staff from them and bring it to me, and he rides off. What Which you what don't staff? Have the staff. Right. Of course, you don't have the staff. You have no idea what, what unless you've read the novel, uh, no <laughs> idea what what <laughs> master Toad is talking about. So now you know that there's someone out there with a blue crystal staff, and that's going to be important. So, event two is hey, you meet Gold Moon and Riverwind. Guess what Gold Moon has? A magical blue crystal staff. <laughs> Not only does she have it, but if any characters are injured when they meet, the staff heals those characters, which is what the whole party has been looking for for the last blank number of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, now they they give you instructions for Goldmoon becoming a PC, which is very odd, but not because you know in the in the books Goldmoon and Riverwind are sort of. They're the device that pushes the play forward. They, they are living MacGuffins. Uh, you know, they're the thing that make the main characters go on the quest that they do. So making Gold Moon a PC, I guess, makes sense. Uh, because you're already playing all these characters from the novel that are the PCs. Uh, but it says you can't play Riverwind as a PC... which seems sort of bizarre you're you're already playing these other characters was it just because there was no room to put river wind stats in the in the book i i don't know uh event three if for some strange reason even though you know that the crystal staff is important and now there's healing magic and and these you know gold moon and river wind are obviously very important in being hunted if for some strange reason you don't travel with them anymore uh Event three is you find them again. So it's like, you know, this we're this is not a linear adventure. This is not a railroad. You can go anywhere you want, but we're going to keep putting Goldmoon and Riverwind in front of you until you take the the hook that is yeah. so important. Um. So event and four. Can I just event, quickly
1: say, yeah, I find it fascinating that so Goldmoon has the staff. The staff has clerical power. Goldmoon is a fifth-level cleric, but has no spells. So she has not yet somehow receive the powers of a cleric, which is also kind of interesting.
0: Yeah. Because that's the main goal of this whole adventure is to return power to clerics. So event four is at some point the party reads the canticle of the dragon. So this is uh, what is essentially a big info dump in the form of a 72 line poem. Uh, If your players can maintain focus while either you or they, or, you know, a, a rotation of you read the 72 line poem good for you mm-hmm. my players and me at this point in my life would not be able to focus through a 72 line poem that i'm hearing rather than reading on a piece of paper to get all the data that is is being dumped on you so otherwise just give give the highlights that they're supposed to read uh glean from the poem thoughts there
1: yeah, I mean it's funny. There's also the song of Gold Moon, which at some point Gold Moon is supposed to sing, which it encourages that if the person has actual talent they should, you know, yeah. play it to music and stuff. But yeah. Yeah, it, it is interesting. I mean, it's neat, it's fanciful, uh, but it's yeah, seventy two is too many lines. Yep.
0: And and the, the song actually has the notes and everything. You could play it, uh, if you're a musician while mm-hmm. while uh, while singing it. So you know, it's, yeah, and, and what I'd like to cool. do with,
1: with something like this in Adventure is there's usually a player in your group that likes to, say, write down lore and mm-hmm. dissect it. And this is where you give them this as a handout and say, hey, you know, inspiration and other benefits if you uh, want to break this down and tell people sort of what you've discerned and learned from this poem as your character analyzes it over the next few days. Great point. And, that, and they'll it, dig into yeah. that, right?
0: And it's also sort of important because the adventure doesn't do a great job of pointing players in the right direction of what they are supposed to be doing. Uh, Even if they travel with gold moon and Riverwind, they don't have any goals. There's no goals for the characters other than these sorts of little bits of information that they get that even then don't point them in a direction until much later. So that canticle may be important uh, to, to be, to be understood
1: and this happens in ways that are small and big like there can be things like there's a part where there's sort of this webbing uh of vines that's described and when i read it i'm like is this something i'm supposed to walk on or not walk on and oh you're supposed to walk on it but it, nothing indicated that right that yeah. it acts as a natural bridge right. and so it's just there are a lot of things big and small like this that the adventure doesn't provide the right impetus to lead to player action and to make it rewarding. And y- yeah. you must do that.
0: Yeah. It's, you know, we've said many times that these adventures are user manuals. And one of the things that was lost in these early adventures was the fact that it is a user manual that other people have to use. Uh, it just relied on the DMs to ferret out the best way to manage it. Uh, which sometimes, you know, if you're a 10 year old kid uh, trying to run these adventures, as probably teos and i both were uh Mm -hmm. isn't quite as easy as it might seem to to others um events four and five uh, i'm sorry events five and six are both on the fourth and the fifth day you get some environmental effects on the fourth morning a cold breeze blows from the north Mm. that's all it says like okay okay (laughs) i guess cold wind blows from north on day six on the fifth or event six on the fifth day Thunder clouds appear and roll in from the north, south, and west. So this is the sort of thing that is telling the players that they want to go east without telling the players that they want to go east. Uh, you know, if if I had a certain party, I'd be like, okay, well, the the trouble is to one of those directions. So that's where we're heading.
1: That's right? That's exactly what I was thinking. How many times when we ran classic adventures, that you as DM would think, oh, by telling them, they'll know to go east. Instead, they're like, all right, we got three directions to choose from. Let's roll and determine which of these ways we go. And it's like, oh, God, no. Exactly.
0: And then event seven is on the dusk of the fifth day, the Dragon Army begins its march up from the south. So every four hours, one of the encounter areas that are on this map in a hex format falls into the hands of the the dragon armies. And and then they then the text tells you use this advancement to push the characters in the direction you want them to go whereas it never really told you the direction that you want them to go right. except you have to ferret out that information via context from the other parts of the adventure.
1: Yeah, and, and I think the 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 beauty of this, right, is that what is happening is the characters are meeting on the road they are then going to uh, hopefully meet up with Gold Moon and have this staff that they realize and will continue to realize is pivotal. Mm-hmm. Uh, they will probably head to where all the refugees are headed. Yep. And in that city, the Lord City of Haven will basically realize this is some sort of magic uh, plot point, prophecy staff, yep. and we must take it to the city that is somehow linked to it historically. Right. Um, and, and they will then head there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and the, the, what can happen really well is that it could feel very organic that you kind of go through these various scenes as one would in a movie or novel and go, well, okay, well, given all this, guys, I think we need to head in this direction. But it could also be just not organic and be super painful and problematic right. as you're going through all these scenes and
0: there's a couple other so uh, we got through the events and now it's all encounters so these events can happen anywhere the characters are on the encounter map Mm -hmm. now there are some encounters that are just that the encounters try to do two or three things they try to (laughs) emphasize that everyone's searching for this staff they try to emphasize armies are marching and refugees are everywhere And then there's a few that point you to the final city of Saroth, where the the actual dungeon part of the adventure takes place. But some of the characters or some of the creatures that tell you to take the uh, staff to this ruined city, why would you believe them? Right, mm-hmm. the one says, "Oh, the, the one bad guy. I think it's a draconian." Says, "This staff was stolen from our city, so we need to take it back." So, as a player, I'd be like, "That's the last place we're taking it." <laughs> yeah. When you go to this council hall of high seekers uh, in the in the city of that haven, haven. Of, of Haven, yeah, uh, they say the army says that they will stop marching if you take this staff back to the city. Well, that's what they want. Right, they want the staff back to the city. So why would you take it there? Yeah. Uh, so you need, uh, then there are a couple other characters you might run into. Uh, Nightshade, a refugee from the south, tells the characters that it's you know he's had a vision that it, this needs to be taken there, and so it, it's it's not everything points you there, but many of the things that point you there, you may not believe or want to believe. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's a whole interesting thing. So that's the first chapter is. yeah, And,
1: and it's, just, this is a study in how things have evolved mm-hmm. in the design of trying to motivate players. And so when you're converting this, you have to see it for what it was and, and you don't want to reproduce that faithfully as it's written here on the page. You want yeah. to convert it to things that will motivate your players Right. So that they feel good, and, and one thing that modern adventures tend to do well is to make characters feel really good about uncovering information, mm-hmm. and have a confirmation of their hunches when their hunches are correct. Right.
0: Yeah. And the most uh, direct and probably flavorful direction is in the Darkenwood, mm. where the uh, unicorn, you know, tells the characters. This is, you know, this is a trustworthy now good aligned creature of, of significant power in an area where humanoids aren't necessarily welcome telling you mm-hmm. go do this. So, you know, you can let them explore, let them do some things, but then at some point funnel them to that as the most direct way to get them on this train that's headed toward the fun part of the adventure. Uh, yeah.
1: Do you want to just summarize the, the last parts of yeah, this adventure? What, pretty what do you much. think? Yeah. Yeah.
0: I mean, chapter two is the lost city. So it's a, it's only like two pages of text covering the, the surface of Zach Saroth. Uh, chapter three is then the most of the dungeon that's beneath the city where the characters go through. It's an isometric map, uh, There are many draconians. Some environmental challenges. Uh, You meet some gully dwarves who can help you uh, go in the right direction to have your best shot at defeating, in chapter four, the black dragon Kisan. And I will let you uh, get get reveal
1: the big secret here. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So the, the the whole thing is when you, however, you finally fall upon the lair of the black dragon, Kassanth, uh which is truly fearsome. Yeah. Uh, it has a 64 hit point breath weapon and the most hit points you're going to have is like 36 or something like that. Yeah. Um, so you will get a vision. The person holding the staff, which is probably Goldman, will get a vision saying hit it with the staff. And if you hit it, the staff will break. There will be a big white explosion. The dragon will die and the person who broke the staff and the staff will both have vanished. You win. You just got hit once. Yep. Touch it with yep. the staff.
0: Yep. So, I mean, obviously this is very cinematic mm-hmm. and not necessarily the way that most adventures happen. It can be cool if it's handled very carefully and very correctly because it's an ancient black dragon. So <laughs> if you're running this in fifth edition, obviously you don't want this to be an ancient black dragon.
1: <laughs> you, won't be, you won't be able to hit it.
0: Exactly, you wouldn't be able to hit it at all. But if you give hints leading up to it, starting right at chapter one, uh, as soon as someone touches the staff or the staff comes within five feet of someone, one of the players, you know, start having these visions of hitting a black dragon with the staff. If you mm-hmm. telegraph it enough and you give enough hints, you make it their idea rather than this sort of kludgy Deus ex uh ending, then it's really cool. Uh, and it yeah. might be uh, you have to get it to a quarter hit points or you have right. to do these other things. So you make it not just a knockdown, drag out fight, but you have to remove a scale from the dragon
1: as well. Yeah. Right?
0: Add something weird and yeah. different.
1: Like Lord of the Rings, right, has that whole, like, the one missing scale, right? And so right. it could be really cool if, like, the person wielding the staff or someone else could perceive that weakness and, like, ah, hit it there, right, right? after you've been in it, in battle with it for a few rounds. Um, it's worth also mentioning, especially because there's that there's an earlier scene when you arrive at the dark well outside of this complex. The dragon flies out, casts Darkness, strafes you twice with its breath weapon, and then flies back down below. And the first thing you might look at the staff block and go like, well, it has no ability to cast darkness. Well, that comes from magic item. You'll only see that at the end. And you might think, well, I just killed my party because it breathed on them. (laughs) They're probably all gathered around the well. And they're taking 64 points of damage. None of them have 64 hit points. But the staff has a special 10 charge ability to deflect a breath weapon. Mm -hmm. So if they have enough charges... (laughs) then they can actually withstand this. And none of that is explained to you. And so it's important to kind of know that and and, and adjust that as needed in a fifth edition environment so that you can do what's intended, which is that the dragon will display its full power and ferocity and that'll frighten you, uh, which it actually, in this edition too, it'll also stun you. Um, (laughs) but, uh, (laughs) um, But so that you can show that it's really fearsome but it doesn't obliterate them because that's not the point. Right,
0: right. This this is a staff versus dragon fight, not a party versus dragon fight. And as long as you can still make it cool while keeping that dynamic uh, intact, you can have some really fun
1: heroics with your party. Yeah, the other thing is there are a number of places where you descend levels because the idea is this whole ancient city during the Cataclysm was destroyed and sunk into sort of a cavern complex. Mm -hmm. So some places are upside down and and the map's pretty unclear, so it takes some thinking to get through it. But the important part is that there are a number of ways to descend. A Mm -hmm. chain, an elevator system, uh, waterfalls, uh, and a lot of them lead to just falling thousands of feet. (laughs) if you roll poorly and so and i don't think that's supposed to really be part of the experience right it's a very dated part so i think you want to find better ways to capture the fun of it like maybe it's, it's the idea that if you're descending by climbing vines um you know, your, your skill checks would be maybe to deal with some flying creatures that are attacking you, but not plummeting your doom. Or if you're going down the waterfall, how hurt are you, but the water is going to soften your landing and you're not going to die. It's a question of how well you emerge or something, you know, changes the nature of that because you don't just... There's one where you just literally get swept away down the river. Actually, it's just a river in a cavern. And if you're crossing it, you can be just chucked out of the entire encounter area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's a lot of fun. Right. (laughs) A nice trip back. (laughs) You're miles away. Yeah. Just sit at the table quietly now while the rest of the people play. No. Yeah.
0: And the other thing to keep in mind here is that this adventure was this whole setting was made to be a counterbalance to the usual D and D setting. What was stressful and amazing and cool was you couldn't Cast clerical spells, and only clerics could cast healing. While well, druids could, mm-hmm. uh, I think could could in a in AD and D, the druids have healing.
1: I think so, but the question is at so what too. level, and yeah. yeah.
0: So by not allowing clerics, that's one thing. By not allowing healing spells until they complete this adventure and find the discs of mishakal then they can start casting healing spells so that's something that you might want to play around with uh to to re-engage that sort of drama and that tension that was being uh put forward by this adventure
1: and that'll, that'll be an interesting challenge that if, if they decide to relaunch Dragonlance, which it sort sure of seems that the Canada they're doing, how you strike that tone because we've reached the point where so many classes can have, say, temporary hit points yep. um, or healing through various ways that aren't just even a spell, but it's a feature. Um, how do you then strike that tone of, of making it feel you know, special and deadly and, and, and that you need the gods, right. That, that it matters to find them. Um, I'm not sure how you, you, you know, you properly do that when there's so many ways that they can counter that the game no longer expects a cleric class as a necessity. Yeah. And maybe you can't do it mechanically and you, and or, or around healing, you have to do it around the concept, right. Of, of maybe part of that backstory sharing is how, why does it matter to you personally that the gods aren't here and, and hit it from that angle instead.
0: mm mm-hmm. Yeah. Any other thoughts on running this adventure, or what what this adventure? What stood out to you? As yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think I was
1: surprised when I read this because I had not read this in a long time. Just how it felt off. But but as I as I read over it and pondered it more, I realized I think this was a big evolution forward. Mm -hmm. But one of those cases where we experiment. And we sort of, we think we're moving forward, but we're actually sort of moving sideways or uncovering new ground. And someone else looks at it and goes, that's cool. But then they, they do it in a way that truly is moving forward, right? Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It, it, was, and, it was an yeah. excellent, well, excellent marketing tool,
1: right, <laughs> to, to
0: get, start getting into novels. And this was really when the novel, novels from TSR really took off, right? Yeah. It's like Dark Walker on Moonshay, cool. Uh, but not necessarily a bestseller, whereas these Dragonlance novels were. Uh, yeah. They captured the imagination of non-players as well as players, and uh, so it was you know an interesting way to be able to play the same story that the that you read, but with your own characters, yeah, and see what's different. So you know that was that was an interesting experiment as well.
1: It, it's it is interesting. It it has. I don't know if there is a good example of it working well. Uh, They they tried the same thing with Dark Sun novels. And I think in general, you don't want to feel like you're retreading. You don't want spoilers. You want your own story, I think. And and more what you want, I think, is to be in the world and have a a parallel, uh, you know, a, a comparable experience to what heroes in a movie or a novel experience, but it's truly your own experience is better.
0: Yep. All right. Well, with that, We will say adieu to Dragonlance Mm 1, Dragons of Despair, and at some point DMs of Despair. (laughs) (laughs) And we will continue next week with a brand new adventure. We will see what tickles our fancy. Yeah, But if you've listened this far, thank you so much for supporting us with your ears, and to our patrons, thank you for supporting us with your hard-earned dollars. Um, If you would like to become a patron of the show, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash MMP. Teos, where can people find your musings on this wild industry of ours?
1: Ooh, Alphastream.org. I've been uh, writing about how to mash up Tomb of Annihilation and Dungeon of Doom. Uh, And there's even a a link to the video where I also talked about this. Um, That's been fun. You can find me on Twitter at AlphaStream. How about you, Sean? Uh, You
0: can find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin. You can find the podcast's Twitter handle at MasteringDND. You can also leave comments on the YouTube channel where you're hearing our melodious voices. Mastering Dungeons is a Misdirected Mark production. So, Teos, now that we have braved the ancient black dragon, what are we going to do now?
1: Uh, Let's take these Discs of Mishakal that we gained that mean so much to us that it's not told us in in this adventure what it actually is. So, just, yeah, congratulations on what you did. Do you have one Discs that let you be (laughs) clerics. Maybe, but we don't know that yet. Perhaps.